Welcome to another edition of On the Inside Track. How do we know which choices are ours to make? How do we know the best choices to make? Join me as my guests and I explore defining moments from there to here. I'm Debbie Hazelton on the Inside Track. My guest this week is someone who does so many things day after day to help to improve the lives of others, and he strikes me as someone who has a tremendous amount of humility, not even really knowing that he has this impact. I don't think he really tries to have an impact at large as much as just to make a difference wherever he can with his talent, his passion and compassion, his commitment to informing people, advocating for people, using humor, eloquence, and a variety of gifts to just really help to empower and include others wherever possible. I'm talking about Michael Byington. Hey, Michael, welcome. It always struck me as you being a person who feels a sense of purpose in your life, a sense of mission about who you are. Well, I'm honored to hear what you had to say there. Uh, (laughs) I think I have evolved over the years and have had multiple missions, but I will certainly agree that uh, I'm one of these people who is kind of like the concentrated espresso type. I have a lot of passion for any mission that I've had. My first college degree was in drama therapy, and I was convinced that I was going to be the next great uh, gift to to drama therapy or uh, psychodrama or some of those fields. Wow. And I did get jobs that allowed me to practice some of that. I uh, ran a performing arts group that was peopled with all kinds of disabled people for a while, which we uh, originally we had the sponsorship of an independent living center, and we were called the uh, Topeka Independent Living Center uh, players, but they dropped us after a while. I guess we got too controversial for them, so uh, we became the Uncivil Liberation Players. <laughs> So were you challenging kind of the status quo with all that? I suppose I was, but my uh, approach as a drama therapist was to bring in a bunch of people with varying disabilities that were living out in the community and saying, okay, what happened to everybody this week? And some of the best stories that would be told, we would start to dramatize. And we never really set them in stone. We always just continued to do improvisations around the themes. And eventually it would get set enough and funny enough that we would decide that we could do that in some of our public performances. Most of it had a point because it was coming out of people's real life of things that were like really happening to them, you know, so. That's fascinating, though. You know, it's a great way to give voice and help other people to find voice and that's some of what I sensed about you early on do you remember anything that sparked your interest into wanting to create that for people I think from uh, junior high on I was telling people, well, I'm going to major in drama and psychology and figure out some way to put them together. And although I never really had a job as a drama therapist, I worked for a center for independent living and I worked uh, with a a group of uh, well, with the state program that served people who were deaf-blind, many of whom were visually impaired, hearing impaired, not fully deaf-blind, and uh, 
you know, I had opportunities to practice drama therapy, even though I wasn't called a drama therapist, but uh, I kind of, out of that, evolved into, okay, we're identifying all of these problems, but there's got to be something that we can do about it, and that got me involved in lobbying, and uh, I ended up being the legislative chair for our state affiliate for a number of years, and got some attention because I was giving a lot of testimony at the state legislature and ultimately uh, was hired by uh, an outfit that was a service provider called uh, Envision to uh, serve as their lobbyist and uh, did a lot of work then at the Capitol in uh, uh, Topeka, Kansas, where I'm from. And occasionally they would send me to Washington. Uh, that allowed me to get invited to the uh, signing of the ADA and a few things like that, which are very memorable experiences that have sort of marked my life for what it is. I feel that I've been very fortunate in my life, not that I've been at the center of any of this stuff, but I've certainly gotten to be a spectator of a lot of history and blindness history. and civility yes. advocacy, and uh, that's been kind of fun. Well, but, I would imagine that that has also been part of what's made it worth it for you you know like a lot of times I think people go along and they try one thing or another and maybe they might see a little bit of result but not always a lot and to be there at the moment that something big like the ADA is happening I mean I imagine that really did spark a feeling of wow you know we're really we're really accomplishing some things well, I was moved enough by it that it came up in this show, and I had no idea what we were going to talk about tonight, but <laughs> since well, you brought it up, it, it, it happened, but I think it also proves that no matter how committed you become to a uh, particular course of action, it may not necessarily be what you do for the rest of your life. I went back to school at the age of 55 and uh, uh, got my uh, Certified Orientation and Mobility uh, Specialist credential, which as a legally blind person, I'm certainly not the first in the country, but uh, there aren't a whole lot of us who have gone into that field that uh, are blind or legally blind. And it, it's almost been like everything I've done in life has been something that I advocated for, mm -hmm. then it happened, and then I made a living out of it for a while, which is, you yeah. know, fun. Well, see, what I think is, is interesting is, to me, there's a common link in all of this that I'm hearing, and advocacy is part of it, but it sounds like it's about helping people, helping people to find a voice and then helping to find that sense of personal power and I I think that is um, and the fact that you were even interested in psychology and all of that is interesting to me I mean were you one who struggled early on were you were you in the midst of of some of that where you created some sense of empathy well you know I've always had a certain uh, uh, guess the word would be uh, jealousy of people who, for example, went to a school for the blind, because I've always been more comfortable around blind and visually impaired people in a way, I suppose. But I went mainstream all the way. Sometimes if you are the only visually impaired person in, or, or blind person in a group, it does feel kind of lonely. So mm -hmm. I've, well, yeah. And, you know, I don't know if you had 
people around who listened to you as you were kind of putting things together and maybe soul searching and finding your own voice, but to go into psychology and then to go into drama and and to have that sense of humor. Oh my heavens. I imagine that was, you know, a saving grace along the way, I would imagine. It's a blessing, but it's also an albatross sometimes, I think. Uh, I mean, I did my first stand-up routine uh, for a junior high talent show when I was in seventh grade. And yes, people laughed and they thought I was real funny. And I got the reputation of the class clown. Mm-hmm. And I fully uh, cashed in on that reputation, uh, including acting like I could not see some things that I really maybe could see, running into walls, doing things like that, pratfalls, because it was funny and it mm-hmm. would get a laugh. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. thing that I learned about that is, yes, there is a superficial level at which people really enjoy that. But then in my quiet moments, and I was reading some of your emails about your shows tonight, you love quiet moments, you love being one-on-one in people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was really searching for that kind of yeah. interaction. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to have a serious girlfriend, mm-hmm. things like that. Those things weren't available because I had so absolutely thoroughly ingratiated myself as the glass clown. Yeah, So sure. you know, that, that, it, uh, I remember my mother telling me that most comedians are very serious. You know, so... Ooh, your mother was a very insightful wasn't person. Wasn't that cool? When you're doing your O&M now, what's that like with people? Well, I'm a low vision guy. And one thing that I have absolutely committed to share with people is that there's one thing that I'm never going to be and I'm never going to act like I am, and that's thoroughly sighted. I'm not fully sighted. Mm-hmm. I'm also not blind. Mm-hmm. And I think this is probably why I'm an ACB member and not an NFB member. Uh, I think that we have to acknowledge that there are people who are blind, there are people who are sighted, and there are people who are somewhere in between, and they all have their sets of skills and their sets of capabilities, etc., to bring into, you know, making the world a better place or whatever, just just who we are. I am someone with O&M who will share what I see, and I will tell people up front. Now, I'm not going to monitor you like an o, like an NOMC that was trained with NFB. I am a certified orientation and mobility specialist. Um, I got my credentials from Texas Tech and then took the test and passed it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to monitor you from some distance, but I'm not going to monitor you from as far of a distance as many other O&Ms would. When you're on an independent travel route, but I have to, to observe what you're doing, you can kind of figure I may be back there somewhere, but just don't look back if you have any vision because that's not important where I am. What's yeah. important is that you show me that you've learned what we were trying to learn and that you do this route or, or whatever you're attempting to do. Well, why, why was it important to you to do this, to become this? You know what? It was really important to me to become this because I was out of other things to do. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> okay, I get, yeah, I get that. And I thought That's you the truth. I mean, I had been a lobbyist and I had been somewhat successful, but I had burned out. Mm-hmm. 
After I burned out, I became a shift manager for the dormitory of our residential rehabilitation center for the blind here in Kansas. Mm -hmm. And that was great because it was like unstructured time that I could provide rehab services to people. I mean, we did whatever the person wanted to work on. That's uh, cool. I, I assisted people with O&M. I assisted with uh, daily living skills. I assisted with this and that. Just whatever they wanted to do when they got back up on the dorm mm -hmm. was what we got to work with. And I loved the job. Didn't make much money at it, for sure. They don't pay those people very much. Mm -hmm. I was making about three times as much money when I was a lobbyist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but eventually, uh, it was real clear to me, because I had been a lobbyist, that the Kansas legislature was going to close down our Rehabilitation Center for the Blind in Kansas. I went to our affiliate office. Our ACB affiliate does have uh, an office because they've cut so many services in Kansas that are operated by the folks who ought to be providing blind services, like the state or, or wealthy private not-for-profits that are getting lots of government money, that our little state affiliate has opened up an office, and we do provide quite a few uh, supportive and rehabilitative services out of it, a lot of which are provided by our members who are just volunteers or who uh, are retired from the now lo no longer existent state agency. And I was just going to work with them and maybe try to make a little bit of money in private practice, but they were having hearings after I quit. And I quit about six months before the place closed down. And uh, my old CEO at Envision, where I had done uh, my lobbying work, it's the largest private not-for-profit that to represents that, that serves mm -hmm. blind and visually impaired people in in Kansas mm -hmm. and in some other places across the country with some of their base stores that they do and so on uh, there there was uh, public hearings about the closure of the rehab center for the blind and uh, uh, Linda Merrill who was the uh, CEO of Envision at that time was there basically to see what business she wanted that she could pick up and uh, I had showed up representing our state affiliate which, uh, you know, I was kind of burnt out on lobbying, but somebody needed to do it, so I was there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Linda and I went to lunch, and uh, I gave her some help in terms of, well, no, this is really what you're wanting to do. You're wanting to do related services. You don't want this and this and this because you're not going to make any money at it. And we had a nice conversation. And she said, well, I'd like to put you back to work, but, uh, you know, our lobbyist now is... Uh, Pat Roberts' son, he's still a senator from Kansas, and I really don't need a lobbyist. I don't know what you'd like to do. I wish you'd have gone, I wish you'd have gone and finished up your uh, work in orientation and mobility because everybody used to talk about how good you were at, at giving directions and getting mm -hmm. people around. Mm -hmm. I said, well, send me back to school and let me finish up my credentials and I'll be your orientation and mobility instructor. And it was just an offhanded comment over a wow. lunch. Wow. But wow. that's how it became a comms. So, uh, so now that you're doing that, what what's it like for you? Well, it depends on what's happening. When I'm standing out in 100 degree heat on a uh, corner <clears throat> uh, with somebody who's learning to ride the buses, uh, waiting for a bus that has broken down. Oh. Uh, I can't tell you that it's the most mm -mm. joyous thing that I've ever done in my life. Mm -mm. But overall, I just had a new person come in today who uh, was a school librarian. And at the age of 62, her diabetes went out of control and she lost absolutely, uh, absolutely all of her vision very quickly. When a person loses their vision, their balance is mm -hmm. off. They, they feel completely disoriented. Mm -hmm. And uh, we really had a good time together because uh, I do use a lot of humor in my O&M practice. Of course you do. Because I think yeah, there do. is so much tragedy that people, particularly who have suddenly experienced a vision loss, 
associate with blindness, mm-hmm. you've absolutely got to get them past that. Yeah. And, you know, my, I hope I can teach her something as we work out what we're going to be doing. I hope I can make her get around more independently again. But the one thing that I know happened was that she left our conversation today and my assessment laughing and feeling better about herself than she did when she came in. And that is part. uh, O&M is not something that is totally taught. It's something where the individual has to be brought into the mindset to believe Mm -hmm. that it's possible. If Mm -hmm. they believe it, they'll figure it out to uh, a certain extent. I had something happen today that that just doesn't usually happen to me. I, I made a grown man cry. Uh, he was a gentleman who is slightly learning disabled, but, you know, pretty capable guy. But he's losing his vision due to retinitis pigmentosa, and he has just, you know, a very tiny amount of uh, vision left. And uh, because he is learning disabled, he's got some parents that are very committed to with his mm-hmm. situation. He's in their 30s, and they're in their 60s, and they know that they're going to not be around forever. So they want to make sure this guy's going to be okay as a, a blind guy with a learning disability. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I, I love working with the family. They're they're a great family. Uh, they, I, mom and dad go on the the O and M lessons with us, and I support that because this gentleman lives about three hours away from where he's coming to get lessons from me, and so mm. mom and dad have to fill in and do some of this sure. between lessons and so on. But they said that they went on vacation and they were in a large uh, touristy area of some type in a building that had plants all over it and people all over it, and he became very uh, confused and frustrated and and they wondered if we could work in some you know really nasty big buildings on interior mobility so i took him to this bank building in wichita that is absolutely a disaster of a thing to get around it's awful Mm. and i gave him several routes to work and i probably pushed him just a little bit too hard and sure enough uh at some one point he got disoriented and I found him walking along a hall and I said, hey, what's going on, bud? And he was crying and he said, I want to go home. Mm. And my response at that point was, let's sit down and talk about this for a minute because I want you to know all the things that you did well during this lesson. that's great. That's great. Because I think that's what you have to do in that situation. Yeah. But I'm going to think about that a lot because it's, it's not my purpose in life to make people sad, to make mm-hmm. people cry, and yet sometimes I have to accept that maybe he has to go through that to really realize the importance mm-hmm. in things that he and I are working on together, you know? so Yeah, and maybe each time the envelope will get a little wider, you know? But, I mean, I love the way you handled it instead of just browbeating him, you know? I, I think anytime somebody starts to cry, they've been browbeaten enough. I do, too. It's been paid, and it's time to... Back off a little bit. Talk to us a little bit about FIA, because you've been involved with that for ever, right? <laughs> yes. The first time I went to an FIA board meeting, uh, well, I had been drugged to some ACB national conventions with my parents. Uh, my mom was legally, well, I, I mentioned that earlier, that my dad had been visually impaired and my mom was. And uh, uh, I'd heard about this organization because I listened to uh ACB reports before there was really, you know, fully developed ACB radio, and they had done uh, features on FIA, Friends in Art of ACB, all of these 
artists and lovers of arts that were getting together, and I just thought it sounded like a really neat group. So when my wife and I decided we had enough money that we could swing going to ACB National Conventions and went to uh, the, uh, the, the first one that we attended in Las Vegas in 1985, that we attended as adults, as I said, I attended mm-hmm. as a teenager with my, uh, with my parents, but the first meeting I went to was the FIA board meeting. I just wanted to sit in and see what was going on, and I met Janice Peterson and uh, Barbara Chandler and some of the people that were really the movers and shakers that started FIA, and it was just so incredible to be uh, with those individuals, and I've never really been a super FIA leader. I was vice president at one point, I guess because they couldn't find anybody else, but uh, uh, I I have been a member now from 1985 to the present, and so I guess that comes out to about 31 years, and have always been kind of in the background as a supporter of uh, blind people working in the arts, and that probably comes out of my drama therapy experience. Uh, I had the, the pleasure, for example, during the time I was a lobbyist of Envision, of telling my CEO, you know, we really need to bring theater by the blind, which I got to see at an ACB convention, uh, in to do a banquet for us and to do a, 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 a performance for our people. And we made it happen. That was a, a wonderful experience. Uh, so, uh, well, a lot of the support behind me, and I, I can't say enough about her has been uh, my wife who has stuck with me through thick and thin over many years uh, and the man mm-hmm. is totally blind mm-hmm. and uh, I was the one whose parents had been involved with uh, ACB and the state affiliate hers certainly hadn't but uh, in starting to date me she certainly got sucked into all of this and has uh, you know made her own name in ACB and I don't have to uh, to speak for her at all in terms of what she's done with the organization but this year we had an experience that was kind of a bonding experience for us and even more than me has always been a member of ac uh, of uh, friends in art of acb but she's always been kind of in the background and this year some some very seemingly tragic things happened uh, uh nancy pendograph is one of our uh, absolute mainstays of the organization she sure is you have uh, interviewed her. You know mm-hmm. that she, as well as having been a rehab teacher, was for many, many years a regular professional entertainer that worked at an Irish pub and mm-hmm. just wonderful stuff. And her son, Roland Bowers, is uh, one of the most incredible musicians that I've ever met and just a, a great guy. But uh, Nancy and Roland were going to have a lot to do with bringing the showcase off this year. And it turns out that Roland uh, developed some medical problems and uh, was in the hospital very ill, and they couldn't come. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Lynn Huddle uh, is currently the president of ACB. She has always had yeah. a lot to do with the showcase and so on. And her husband, Bill Huddle, uh, who was a few years her senior, uh, became very ill, and uh, he did pass away, sadly, uh, a few days ago. Mm-hmm. But uh, they were unable to come because of Bill's illness. So I thought I was going to just show up and maybe I'd sing a comedy song in the FIA showcase or maybe help out somehow. But I had no idea that I would be doing very much. But Ann and I were really the only officers of the ACB. Uh, Well, I was the only officer and Ann was 
uh, a member supporting me who were the only ones at the convention this year. You mean for FIA, yeah. Mm-hmm. FIA, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, they kind of said, well, do you think we need to cancel the showcase? And I said, hell no, we're not going to cancel the showcase. Mm-hmm. We've had a showcase for 30 years now. It's not going to happen. Okay. So Ann and I decided somehow, even though we didn't really know what we were doing, we were going to pull it off. And another background person who's been a wonderful help to us over the years, Don Horn, uh, helped me with auditions, oh, and okay. Ann and I emceed it, and the ACB radio people, <laughs> Miss Debbie, were absolutely <laughs> wonderful, and we, uh, Nancy Pendergraf, from uh, a distance, found us a great accompanist, and by golly, we pulled it off, yeah, and most did. people seem to have liked the showcase. You <laughs> did, and put that thing in there about hang in there and get well for the ones that couldn't be there, and just... You know, again, uh, the the kindness, the thoughtfulness. I remember you coming up to me after my invocation on Friday. Uh, I'm so happy we got to connect this year. And well, um, you did a wonderful thing with your invocation. Thank uh, you. For those of you who didn't hear that, folks, Miss Hazelton here <laughs> was invited to give an invocation, and she gave up most of her time to give that to Jason Castanguay another ACB radio personality, who had done just a wonderful, wonderful rendition of uh, So Please Be Kind, and I don't remember the name. Help Us On The Way, and We Can Be Kind, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just some some wonderful pieces. Yeah. And, of course, I mean, you know, Ann and I were pleased to be able to pull it together, but without people like Timothy Jones, who is an absolute uh, uh, virtuoso pianist and... Jason, then uh, uh, Harvey, Dr. Harvey Miller. I mean, Dr. Harvey Miller, I, I, if I can get through this without breaking into tears, it's going to be surprising Aww. because when I think about the work that Harvey has done, it, it truly is very emotional to me. Uh, we gave a big piece of the second act to Dr. Miller. Dr. Miller is 83 years young, mm-hmm. and he... Uh, a few years after he had retired from his professorship at uh, Brevard College in North Carolina and was a uh, professor emeritus, found this uh, tome in the American Printing House for the Blind Museum that was some of the original music written by the compatriots of Lewis Braille, and it was the first music in the world ever written in the Braille notation invented by Lewis Braille. Hmm. And uh, Lewis Braille's roommate, whose uh, last name was Gutierrez, uh, had written over half of the pieces in this tome. Hmm. And Harvey did this wonderful introduction, <clears throat> said oh, where he can just imagine the two boys at the age of 12. Oh, yeah. and Lewis Braille saying, well, I don't know, that 12-dot system the captain brought over, I don't, I don't like that. I think we ought to do six dots. <laughs> and Gutierrez had said, well, how about eight dots? That way we'll have uh, two for the cursor. And, of course, the audience loved that because they didn't exactly have cursors back then. But uh, Harvey, in his retirement, took this music and brought it into Sibelius, figured out how it should be written in notation that people could read, and he has restored to the world 
music written by these wondrous blind composers mm. that would have absolutely been lost if he hadn't have done what he did. Wow. And I feel that showcasing him at the beginning of the second act of the showcase this year is something that should be appreciated by people as a piece of incredible history in relation to blindness, in relation to Braille, and in relation to music, because it's just something that wouldn't have happened without him. And I am just honored and enthralled Mm. to be in the presence of people like Timothy and Harvey and Jason. Mm -hmm. I, I count myself so lucky just get to rub elbows with those people. And so uh, the FIA showcase and anything Ann and I were able to bring to it by what we did was just a labor of love, pulling it all together to give these people a chance to share something which absolutely had to be shared. Well, it was beautiful, and you certainly did it with all the spirit and skill, because I like this spirit that you put forth and this common denominator that I think is in uh, many of these things that you do, and having fun, and but yeah, you know, you really do care about people, and it, and it comes through. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Michael, for being my guest this week on the Inside Track. Ah. I'm